Hi, I'm Ryan, the Limnic Rules Guy. I'm Ben, the Wizard Rock Player. I'm Helen, the Adiabatic Storyteller. And I'm Jared, the Ice Dam Game Master. And together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. Today, we've got another meta episode for you. We're going to be talking about world-building geography. Okay, so what's our challenge rating? What do we mean by world building? What do we mean by geography? Uh, specifically for the purposes of this episode, not you know all geography in the world everywhere. World building is a huge term and we're going to apply it to basically any sort of meta narrative or design that fleshes out and adds vibrancy to your setting in your game. Think of it as character development for the environment. Saying that the game is set in a ridge and valley province of low, ancient, folded mountains is world building. Saying there's a naturally exposed stone face cut into a mountainside at the edge of town is world building. Saying that there's a blue hole there at the foot of the cliff where people in town leave candles and pieces of paper with wishes and prayers to be heard by old gods of the wood whose names are forgotten but whose presence is still felt is world building. World building is the background of your entire game. Without an interesting backdrop, it doesn't matter how cool your characters are, your story is going to be one dimensional. You can't, you just can't have a dynamic story without a fitting background. There are many, 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 many things that go into world building. Culture, religion, history, geography, time period, magic, technology. I could literally spend an hour listing elements of world building, but I won't because today we are going to be focusing on the often overlooked geography section of world building primarily is its own field, but we'll touch on it where it shapes and influences other aspects of world building. Also, if you want to start a drinking game right now where you sip every time we say world building, I recommend you stick to beer and not hard alcohol. Okay. (laughs) One last broad stroke thing about world building, keep something in the description vague so that others can add to it. It's important to remember that you are not the only author, you are just one of them, even if you're the GM. So geography as a scientific discipline is not just memorizing capitals. Geography is both a field and an approach that looks at a subject and how it behaves in physical space over time. Wait, 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 but I got an A in geography just by memorizing capitals. That that wasn't that wasn't the thing? Okay. No, that's not the extent of the thing. But that is very nice. I'm very proud of myself. Way to go third grade. Good job. All right, so if that sounds like a massive definition, it is. It touches every other field of study in some way. Basically, if you're describing where something is, why it's there, why it's there instead of somewhere else, how long it's been there, and where it might be in the future, that's geography. So this is a gaming podcast. This is not Helen Talks for Hours About Science, the show. So we're going to limit the scope of the geography we bring into this episode to the ways you can take inspiration from real-world geographic principles and features to add dynamic landscapes and environment into your world if you do have science questions you want to hear helen talk for hours about though feel free to email them in and maybe she'll do a future intermezzo about it if no one stops her on a brief tangent i really have no idea how the hell i ended up on a podcast where i'm not the science nerd like i feel like i've been kidnapped and taken to some distant dimension or world honestly though i think it's just because you're one kind of science nerd and i'm a a slightly different kind of science nerd and we have like a venn diagram of science nerdery going on but like I, i recall asking you to explain mail mail extension cords to me once Fair. I have to say, um, 
I think we are somewhat confusing uh, the term nerd with with obsessive. Um, okay, I just really want to clarify that. Well, to be fair, I think <laughs> Helen and I are both both of those things on outside. I do, but um, you know, those are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Okay, back to our topic. So for this episode, when we talk about the way that geography can inform our world building, we basically mean that taking physical features and the underlying scientific principles from the real world can help both one, get you past the blank page if you're not sure where to start, and two, be a source of inspiration if you want to spice up the setting of your game. If you're playing a fantasy game of some kind, ignore and break as many of these scientific principles as you want. Even if you're not playing a fantasy world, it's your world. Screw it. Deciding how things work in your game is your prerogative. The real world sucks. Well, no, the real world and its natural processes are beautiful and fantastic and amazing and better than anything else. But that's not what you're talking about. All right. So we're going to be talking a little bit about some pure fantasy geographical ideas and how maybe you want to flesh them out with real world principles to make them more vibrant. So I'm a professional poet, whatever the hell that actually means. And very few of the greats use complete proper grammar. But whenever we're teaching someone new poetry, we always tell them that they need to understand and have a firm grasp of the grammar first before they go herring off and writing whatever they want and breaking all of the grammar rules. Knowing the rules lets you break them usefully and purposefully without turning your piece to nonsense. These real scientific principles are the grammar of world building. You're probably better off at least knowing the basics before you start changing. For instance, there is a reason that cities aren't generally built in the middle of deserts, frozen or sandy, at least not without fairly modern tech. So if you want to have a major city in your fantasy world, ask yourself, why is it there? Is there an endless well in the middle of the city tapping a deep underground sea providing it water? Or are there magically cold crystals that grow or are placed there that lowered the temperature enough there was a regular mist here transforming just this city? Are there great sand whales filled with water sacks that your town worships and hunts? How does your desert city work? Is there some resource so rare and so valuable that it just doesn't matter how hard it is to bring water in or how hard life is? It's just worth it. <coughs> cough, cough, dune, cough, cough. What do all of these choices do for your city or society that you're building? Water, sand, whales that you hunt. Hell yes. But the world is vast and magnificent and full of weird and awe-inspiring, fantastic things. So maybe you'll be able to find the magical thing that you're looking for is already out there somewhere without breaking any of the rules. Later in this season of our podcast, we'll be doing a deeper dive specifically into city building, cultures, nations, politics, and how they interact with the world they're in. Today, we're focusing on geography. So disclaimers up front, uh, we're four Americans. We cannot in good conscience claim to be the authority on whether something from outside our individual communities and backgrounds is cultural appropriation or reinforces a harmful stereotype. We try, we make mistakes, we learn, we work to minimize and make up for harms that we do. Here, here. Also, if you do not derive joy from extensive world building, lots of notes, lots of research, do not feel obligated to do more than you want to do. Not as the GM and not as the player. Do not do homework for game. Unless you want to. I frequently do homework for gaming. If I don't set a deadline and make it a personal assignment, it just never gets done. As always, if it isn't fun, if it's getting in the way of your fun, you probably shouldn't be doing it. We're here to have 
have fun. If something's stopping that, that's a problem. Communicate your boundaries, respect other people's boundaries, and have fun. Later in the season, we're going to have a meta episode about simulationism in gaming and deciding how much so technically is right for your table. Okay, let's set the difficulty. Why is geographical world building important and what does it add to a game? So there's two examples from a game that I love to bits that is perfect for this discussion. And it's Changeling the Lost. And in this game, it's a New World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness game, presently licensed by Onyx Path. You play a changeling, person stolen by the Fae who has escaped Arcadia to return to the world to seek shelter and succor from others like you. Changelings were irrevocably changed by the Fae during their time in Arcadia, and they no longer belong to either world. Changelings in the game tend to organize themselves into courts as a way to both band together as a political unit and to keep the Fae at bay using arcane oaths and fealty struck with powerful elemental entities and even entire concepts. The default courts in the core book for both editions of the game are the four seasonal courts, spring, summer, autumn, and winter, who notionally, theoretically, take power at the beginning of their season, reign for three months, and then hopefully allow the crown to pass to the next season's monarch. And right off the bat, we have a question. What if you don't live in a place with a temperate four-season cycle? Now, the core book does have some suggestions for you there. So perhaps you have a court of scorched earth and a court of the monsoon. Instead of four seasons, you have a dry season and a rainy season. The second way that Changeling the Lost tries to incorporate unique and dramatic landscapes in the game is with the hedge. This is the fey border realm between Earth and Arcadia. The hedge is shaped by the joy and suffering of the humans who live nearby. The hedge is so cool. The hedge is really cool. Now, this is supposed to be an absolute fantasy realm there are hedgerows a hundred feet tall made of broken mirror shards that try to lure you off the path with glimpses of people you once knew screaming silently and beckoning you into the glass as you walk by, for example. But that's why it's a perfect example the role a physical environment can play in shaping your game. The fantastical elements here are used by the game as a way of exaggerating the narrative role and environment plays in your story. In our hunter game, a lot of action takes place in downtown Roanoke, Virginia, an area with a bunch of train tracks nearby and a lot of like broken old buildings from the city was a major rail transshipment point. So whenever we enter the hedge there, I have lots of broken glass and steel in the environment. The grasses are broken glass and the mountain that is right next to Roanoke is made out of a pile of twisted rail ties, things like that. Consider, would Silent Hill have been Silent Hill without the fog? Would Rivendale have been the same place of respite for the Fellowship if it were a basalt castle built on the edge of a cliff surrounded by a perpetual river of lava? Probably not, but it would make a great base for a Sith Lord. Immortan Joe in Mad Max Fury Road uses the arid desert environment to cement his tyrannical reign by completely controlling access to the groundwater from the safety of his highly defensible Mesa Fortress. Meanwhile, the Green Place, which is probably an oasis, experienced an ecological collapse, leaving Furiosa and the Mothers to reckon with the reality that there's no going home. Not truly. Now, you might be thinking, but that's just a metaphor. It's a narrative device to demonstrate that there's no way to return the conceptualized self that existed before the traumatic event. What does that have to do with science? You're running a game! Everything's a metaphor and a narrative device. The science is just there to give you ideas. So back to Changeling's Hedge. We're using fantastical elements of the hedge to build an environment
environment that conveys, through tangible symbolism and dream logic rendered into the landscape, meaningful information about the game. It can see plot, it can give hints, it can reflect the evolving nature and narrative of your game. So, to summarize, our stories all happen somewhere. Make that somewhere as much a part of your story as the characters are, and you'll open up a whole element of design and narrative possibility to enhance your story. I think possibly we also could have said if you're going to pick narrative as the word you do the drinking game to, be careful with that one. That one's a doozy. <laughs> yeah, that one's a doozy too. That one that one sneaks up on you because it's not front loaded. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but have we considered the Ludo narrative? <laughs> <laughs> Ludo narrative, you have to finish your drink. I was gonna say, Luda, you need to you need to do better. You can't just shoehorn that in. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> a series wide drinking game and not particular to this episode. So next, pick your approach. Here are some examples of natural processes, both to give you a design framework and to inspire you about what's possible. Also, Jared has been waiting extremely patiently this whole episode to say the word mega flood. So in a minute, we're going to let him do that. So you're homebrewing your world. Let's say, to make things straightforward, you want the basic processes of life to look much like they do on Earth. You have your sheet of 24 by 36 poster paper. It's blank. It's staring at you. It's judging you. What do you do? First, let's talk about some basic processes you can use to help get past the blank page. Then when you have a basic sense of what's going on, we'll cover some just really, really cool shit that can happen to a landscape over time to spice things up. So let's start with why things are where they are. The sun! I mean, really though, the sun and seasons. The seasons we experience are the result of varying amounts of solar radiation hitting the planet over the course of a year, based on where the Earth is in its orbit relative to the sun and the direction of its tilt. Earth's axis is tilted approximately 23.5 degrees, relative to its orbital plane. So what that means is that either the northern or the southern hemisphere of the planet will always be more angled towards the sun for half the year and more angled away for the other half. This is why the summer solstice is in June in the north and in December in the south. So world building prompt. What happens if your world doesn't have these seasons? Why does it happen? Maybe it's magic and maybe winter just comes whenever winter damn well feels like it. Or maybe the world doesn't have an appreciable tilt. So the sun is just directly directly overhead of the equator all year round, and day links are the same from the North Pole to the South Pole, or whatever. It's your world, it's up to you. Actually, fun fact, when you started playing Exalted, this is a question that I asked Jared, because we our characters are starting to move toward the frozen North, which the world of Exalted is not like a normal standard planet and very much like this the sun has the same transit and day lengths are not different from north to south so but anyway we talked about the sun and the seasons let's talk about the moon and the sun and the tides so the moon has a huge influence on the tides the gravitational pull from our natural satellite causes the oceans and other large bodies of water to an extent to surge in time with its movements. The sun has an impact as well though, which is why when the sun and moon are in alignment, instead of like at angles with one another, the range between low and high tide is much greater. This is called the spring tide. It occurs around the full and new moons. So why does this matter to your home world? Well, because every time you add a moon or a sun, look at you Tatooine, or a gas giant that your game world orbits looking at you james cameron's avatar 
I think it's so funny that you refer to it as James Cameron's Avatar. I just call it Avatar. Look, nobody remembers the movie, so we figure we might as well put the guy's name on it. So he will never be forgiven for what he did. I liked that movie. Anyways, every time you add a body that orbits your planet or your planet orbits, you potentially increase the range between high and low tide dramatically. So build for that. What would a port city look like if it were built around tides that say rise 50 feet in the course of six hours. That's what happened in the Bay of Fundy in Canada. What if it was that way in New York City? And what if it was a hundred feet of difference with like long stretches of seafloor off the shore exposed for a few hours at a time every day and then suddenly a hundred feet of water is in its place barely 12 hours later. Or even more extreme, maybe your tide is hundreds of feet in differential with low tide revealing entire biomes and maybe even entire societies that are simply underwater at high tide. What does that do to your world, to your characters? All right, so next... We're going to talk about continentality and oceanity. Oceanal. Oceanality. <laughs> Ocean <Sorry>. madness. <laughs> Next, we're going to learn science words. I'm sorry. It's not a good word. This one's simple physics. It takes a lot of energy to change the temperature of water. Water has a high heat capacity. It takes less energy to change the temperature of the ground. The result is that large land masses tend to have much more variable temperatures near the center than at the coast. Hotter summers, colder winters, or maybe just higher temperatures overall. The ocean and other large bodies of water, like Great Lakes or inland seas, provide a temperature-regulating effect that keeps coasts and islands cooler in summer and warmer. In- so this is why you're going to see variations of like 70 to 100 degrees between winter lows and summer highs in Fargo, Minnesota, but only like 20 to 40 degrees between summer highs and winter lows in Punta Arenas, Chile, even though Punta Arenas is closer to the Antarctic Circle than Fargo is to the Arctic Circle. So if you're setting a homebrew city down smack dab in the middle of a supercontinent on your world, your infrastructure and your biosphere will need to account for potentially being 100 degrees Fahrenheit or more in the summer and deep in the negatives in the winter. Have the animals and plants adapted? Next major geological concept we want to talk about is rain shadow. P.S. If I ever make that assassin slash gardener I talk about all the time in a martial arts heavy game, I am officially naming them rain Rain shadow, it's a done fucking deal. Like, claimed. So this is the last one. Very simple. We're not going to let me go off about adiabatic processes. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. Go off about what now? So the windward sides of mountain ranges, the side the prevailing winds come from, tend to be greener, wetter. This is because as the air is forced up by the mountain range, it cools, it expands, and water precipitates out of it. It develops clouds, and it develops rain. The result is a rain shadow, the tendency of the leeward side of the mountain range to be quite dry. A perfect example of this is the difference between Seattle and Odessa, Washington, just across the Cascade Range. Farther east, the Great Plains exist in part because the rain shadow of the Rockies meant there wasn't enough water to support huge forests, but native grasses flourished and sustained vast grazing herds of bison and pronghorn and elk. So when you're placing mountain ranges, think as well about how those mountains interact with the atmosphere and change the availability of water on either side of the range. How is that going to affect the plants and animals there? How will that affect the people there? So you've got a baseline. Let's look a little deeper at some cool features that are out there in the world as inspiration. It's time to talk about the cool shit, Mega Floods! Ah. 
mega floods are exactly what they sound like. Occasionally throughout history, truly staggering floods have occurred at various places. We aren't talking about like, oh, there's a bad hurricane and a few hundred miles are under 10 feet of water floods. We are talking about geography shattering, unfathomable torrents of water. We're talking sweep away all trees and life for thousands of miles floods carve new mountain ranges types of floods. The two most common causes of mega floods are when an enormous ice dam breaks and the ensuing rush of water changes the landscape previously protected by the ice dam or just plain dramatic shifts in the sea level. The Channeled Scablands, which A is an awesome name, but the Channeled Scablands in Washington are an example of a breaking ice dam. The Channeled Scablands were once barren and devoid of a lot, but are now riddled with rivers coolies and cataracts that are now very verdant areas. This is the aftermath of a mega flood tens of thousands of years later and this place is still green because of that flood. So about six million years ago, the entire Mediterranean Sea was isolated from the ocean and basically dried up. It evaporated, leaving a super salinated and harsh environment. Roughly 5.3 million years ago, a geologic shift ended that isolation and the freaking ocean poured through what is now the Strait of Gibraltar and refilled the entire Mediterranean Sea in what is on a geologic scale almost instantly. Like the whole thing happened in scientists' believe a couple of years. This is the greatest known mega flood on earth and it is called the Zanklian flood. So what the hell does this have to do with making your world in an RPG? So well, how would it affect the society if one of these events had recently happened or was currently happening? Entire cities or nations could be wiped out by this. Your trading partners now may be locked across an impassable torrent of water. What does this do to the religion in your society? Do they see it as God punishing them or someone else? That could have really major effects. All right, I'm going to introduce the next one because I think it's awesome. There is a naturally, no, there was was a naturally formed nuclear reactor on Earth. It was in the Oklo uranium mine in Africa. They found some isotopes that only show up as waste products from nuclear fission. And that was kind of a big deal because when the uranium audit comes up with unexpected results, people get kind of twitchy about it. For good reason. So they figured out that it was the uranium was situated in the perfect situation so that water would suffuse the ground around them, causing them to start nuclear fission and that would boil away the water from the heat and the water would slowly come back in and the cycle would restart and this went on for a couple hundred thousand years. Limnic eruptions. Limnic eruptions are sudden releases of vast amounts of CO2 from a lake bed. To have one you need a lake that's deep, cold, still, and near some kind of geothermal activity. It has to be gradually fed the CO2 with the perfect conditions to hold as much as possible without being disrupted often. So that when something does disrupt it, it causes some of the gas to be released, which agitates the water around it, causing that water to release its CO2. And then all of the gas in the lake through this chain reaction just explodes out of the lake. This is actually surprisingly deadly. The cloud release gas is denser than the surrounding air and it can suffocate anything that's nearby. Livestock, people, whatever's in the forest. Next, Tunguska. On June 30th, 1908, a meteoroid exploded in the atmosphere in a very rural part of Russia. 
very good that was a very rural part of Russia. The meteoroid is theorized to be roughly 50 to 60 meters in diameter, and it was traveling around 27 kilometers a second, or Mach 8. The explosion was huge. Trees were flattened for almost 2,200 square kilometers. Windows shattered hundreds of kilometers away. The shockwave in some parts of the world is thought to be around a 5 on the Richter scale. Eyewitnesses say that they saw a blue light almost as bright as the sun travel across the sky, and then a flash, a billowing cloud, and a pillar made of fire that split the heavens in two, turned to black, and fade. That's one of the most metal things I've ever heard. And like a completely natural geological event. Nothing made up here. But you could also say it was an extraterrestrial event. It's true. Because <laughs> technically in the most literal definition of that word, that's what it was. Anyway, my thing is less metal. It's cloud forests. So the thing about cloud forests is they're pretty much exactly what it sounds like. This is a special type of montane tropical or subtropical rainforest that represent just a fraction of the world's overall rainforests. They can only occur when there's this combination of massive amounts of warm, wet air and the high elevations necessary to cause that air to precipitate and form clouds. This is that lifting process of air that we spoke about earlier that also results in rain shadows. So think about that in the context of where you're going to find these types of forests. This is where all of that water goes. The result is that these rainforests, which have to exist above a certain elevation and generally in close proximity to the ocean, are either permanently or rarely seasonally shrouded in in clouds or fog. Not clowns. Not shrouded in clowns. To clarify, we can probably just take the rarely out. The point is that there are a couple where it is technically a seasonal effect. The result is that these rainforests, which have to exist above a certain elevation and generally in close proximity to the ocean, are permanently shrouded in clouds or fog. They're also so fragmented and isolated by the nature of their geographic restrictions that they usually have a high level of endemism. So one of these days I'm gonna have a game or a story or something and there are going to be towns and cities hanging from the backs of gigantic sloth-like creatures lumbering through mile-high trees of a vast intertwined cloud forest. So you just never see the ground because you have these massive furry, viney, living boats just moving along. And who knows what's down there? Uh, P.S. For those that don't know, endemism is basically where a species is only found in a single specific geographic location. The most famous example probably being like the Galapagos tortoise. Islands are known for high levels of endemism and mountain habitats and ecosystems that are specifically restricted to mountain environments can also be known for high levels of endemism because, interestingly, they share a lot of the similar characteristics with islands. They are isolated and fragmented and frequently far away from any other similar environments. Okay, so we've talked about some really cool real-world geology and things that, like, exist, like mega floods. Now it's time to talk about the hopefully just as cool or maybe even cooler fantasy geology. Here's some... You keep saying geology. Do I? 
Yes. Man, geography, geology, it's all the same thing. It's not. I know it's not. I just had to watch your face explode. That was really satisfying. Can't do this to me. Okay, so we've talked about all of the cool real world geography stuff that's out there, like mega floods. Mega. But yeah, thank you for that echo. Every time I say mega flood, there should be an echo. But now I want to talk to you about the potentially even cooler or just as cool purely fantasy geography that you can insert into your world and, and how it may affect stuff. Lots of worlds have floating islands like James Cameron's Avatar, Avatar The Last Airbender, the graphic novel series Autumnland's Tooth and Claw, Zendikar from Magic the Gathering. They could be handled any number of ways. Let's take a closer look at Zendikar from magic for a second. There are hundreds of floating islands in this world and the islands themselves are relatively geographically stable. Some have lots of water and resources and some have none at all. And the people who live on them have to constantly rappel down to look for resources. So why do people live on these floating islands if they are resource light? Well, all the land below is known as the Royal and is a constantly shifting hazardous landscape where the ground may suddenly break apart or turn to lava or even come alive in a you. If you want to make your own floating islands, think about how they stay afloat. Is it magic? Is it a mineral? Do they ever crash? If it's a mineral that makes them float, could this be how flying machines work in this world? Might people try and mine or steal this ore? How bad would that be? Does it exist underground? If you find a vein of it, could you blast or dig a chunk of rock free and create a new island? Lots of world building potential. I'm also going to insert in that kind of system, you can look at existing power dynamics to decide if they would be replicated in your fantasy world. They don't have to be, but ruling the world from on top of your floating island, that's a thing that I think there are people in our world today who would be okay with. <laughs> I like how you say okay with, as though there are not billionaires actively trying to make that happen. They are. So I've always wanted to make a world with an inland sea or great lake of blood. Think about these questions if you make one. How did it get there? How long has it been there? Is there any life in it? How did that life adapt? What are the adaptations? How much of the water table has this poison? So much iron. Yeah, there's a lot of iron in that environment. What does that do? I played in a game once set about a decade after a truly cataclysmic war where the forces of good and evil just totally annihilated each other. The idea was that half of all living creatures died in this war. It was a fantasy and magic setting. It was low tech. So hundreds of millions of sapient creatures died within like a year. And the last surviving Archmage wanted to make sure that it never happened again. So he laid a curse so that the bones of the fallen would never break down. This created the sea of bone that was literally the bones of the dead filling valleys and making mountaintops the only places that people could live. They were like tiny isolated societies that continued on. And the only way to cross to other mountaintops was using giant town-sized elephant creatures or the rare magical flying machine. Hey, um, you, you guys want to you guys want to play the Empire Undying? <laughs> I, I think I want to play the Empire Undying now, you guys. <laughs> 
So the point here is get creative. Think about how your choices affect what resources people have access to. Okay, finally, time to roll the dice. You've done your environmental war building, but how do you make it meaningful in your games? So first of all, Wasteland is a state of mind. Settler colonists gave it the name Death Valley. The Tembisha Shoshone culture thrived there for at least a thousand years before their land was stolen from them. Meanwhile, Franklin's expedition died of lead poisoning, cold, and starvation basically in the backgrounds of the Inuit in Nunavut, who had been there for at least probably more than 20,000 years. Secret message? Don't listen to the European explorer's interpretation of what constitutes a livable climate. Our greatest inheritance as a species is the boundless ingenuity human beings are capable of when we work together to survive. Don't shy away from global extremes in favor of mid-latitude forests in your stories, although forests are also super neat. Forests are super neat, but you know. Tactics for today, logistics for tomorrow. Let's say you've got a wizard. Let's say they have a spell book or a notebook or a vast library. What's the paper made from? If it's pulp-based, where are the plants used to make it grown? Parchment and vellum are a livestock product. Where are these sheep and calves raised? If the city or town that they're in doesn't have a booming paper trade, like maybe the climate makes raising sheep difficult. So do they have to import those materials? And do they import them from far away? Is it expensive? Are there trade agreements just to secure those resources for the wizard college? How much paper or parchment does your wizard college go through on a regular basis? Did your wizard college actively choose a location based on the surrounding environment's ability to meet its needs for paper? Maybe they're personally sustained a whole ranching economy in the surrounding region just because of how much vellum they use. Or do they conjure paper to cut down on costs? Now you get to think about the cost of magic and whether or not there's a whole ranching or forest industry out there. You get to think about the cost of magic and whether or not there's a whole ranching or forestry industry out there that hates wizards because they're able to flood the market with cheap conjured stationery. I really love the idea of protest marches against wizards because they're stealing our jobs. Wizards caps. Or is the first role of a wizard familiar to function essentially as a living notebook or spellbook? A magical repository of information? Because paper is just too valuable to be wasted on notes? In summary, presenting environmental challenges helps ground the action of your story in a physical space. Even if it's all happening in the theater of the mind, it gives your players an opportunity to be creative with how they approach things. It lets them make different challenges feel unique and memorable, right? It's the difference between creating a vibrant story and a bland thing that people forget as soon as they walk away from the table. All right, everybody, it is time for my favorite part of the episode. We have reached the end. We have reached Helen's spells. Helen, what do you got for us this week? So... Violence is just a subsystem. Eventually, when designing a character, you might find yourself in a position where you have to choose between a power that makes you slightly more effective in combat and a power that is rad as hell. And maybe, for instance, you have to choose between spending XP to do a different kind of damage better because you think you have to pull your weight as the power level of the game increases. Or maybe what you really want to do is start taking the charms that ultimately lead 
one day to being able to trap a demon in the body of a possum. Now, one of these things is immediately universally relevant in combat, and you can think of many reasons why perhaps you want to be able to do a slightly different type damage. The other, while rad as hell is arguably a bit of an extended and specialized project, and you may be bullying yourself into taking the thing that will let your character do the violence better because it feels like eating your veggies rather than going in for dessert. So dear listener, stop thinking of combat as vegetables, or rather, stop thinking of vegetables as anything other than one option in a whole rainbow of possible choices. Violence is a subsystem. The function and mechanics in the game, the difference between a game and purely narrative storytelling is, you know, between the game and writing a book with your friends, it's to provide an agreed upon structure to allow some kind of weighted statistical vehicle to adjudicate outcomes, to accomplish outcomes, to accomplish goals. We have subsystems. Thanks in part to D&D, whose honored grandmother is tabletop wargaming, violence is often the most extensively designed subsystem in any of these games because it's difficult to ascribe mechanical weight to asking nicely, but it's very easy to put a set of hit points on a character and pick a damage die for an axe and then send them into a pit to work it out. That's easy. But do not let anyone tell you that that makes it the end-all be-all. And do not let anyone tell you that you have to do the thing that is less cool, less interesting, less fun, just because some floating sense of obligation to what? Keep up with the fact that because you have more XP, there's a notional escalation of the severity of violence and you need to keep up. No. Communicate your goals. Flag your intentions. Let your fellow players know. Let your storyteller know. You're going to take the three charms that lead down the road to demon and a possum because you truly cannot be bothered to make a single number a bit less mediocre to be better at the high fantasy violence subsystem when the demon possum subsystem is right there. Refuse. Resist the siren song of obligatory combat builds. Be a gardener at war and remind them that if they kill all the gardeners, the warriors will starve. That is all. Okay, just for those who are listening to this and may think that as a storyteller, I have forced Helen into making a combat (laughs) character against her will. I want to be 100% clear that every time Helen brings this up, I'm like, yeah, put a demon in a possum. Do your thing. And then the only one bullying Helen into making a combat character is Helen. And that's why I started with... Tell yourself to stop bullying yourself and put that goddamn demon in a possum. That's right. That's all. The end. Well, I'm Ryan, the Lebnick Rules Guy. I'm Ben, the Wizard Rock Player. I'm Helen, the Adiabatic Storyteller. And I'm Jared, the Ice Dam Creating a Mega Flood Game Master. And together, we're the Starting Equipment Podcast. So come down with Sony Ride